Our Father in heaven, we uh, come now gathered in your name, covered by the blood and righteousness of your Son, who is our only hope. And Father, even on a day when we're going to be considering Genesis 3, we have a number of people who are precluded from being with us today because of sickness and illness. Others who are battling against anxiety and depression and all kinds of other things and are unable to be here today. Many others are no doubt carrying around guilt and shame and fear of all kinds. For many of us who have made it here today, we're battling our sin, we're battling doubts, we're battling all kinds of things, distractions of various kinds. So Father, we pray quite simply that you would show us mercy, forgive us for our sins, take away the guilt and the shame that we carry around all the time. Give us grace that something good may happen for us in this time. And Father, simply give us faith that we would believe your word. And give us faith that we might trust your son. Help us now, we pray, in Christ's name. Amen. Well, friends, I've already alluded to this. We are in our third sermon in a series through the book of Genesis. And so today we are looking at Genesis chapter 3. You can go ahead, if you have your Bibles, turn there. You can get ahead of me. I'm going to make some comments by way of introduction, but that way you are ready. Two weeks ago, we considered Genesis chapter 1, which is sort of the overview of the creation of the world. And then last week, we considered Genesis chapter 2, verses 4 through 25. And we thought specifically about the creation of man and woman in God's image, and we thought in depth about the covenant that God made with Adam. And it's not incidental that the covenant name of God, the Lord, shows up in Genesis chapter 2. It was not there in Genesis chapter 1. The covenant name of God shows up in Genesis 2, and it is also in Genesis 3. That covenant that God made with Adam that we considered last week, we thought about how it has been known historically as the covenant of works, because it was contingent upon the obedience of Adam. It was a covenant through which Adam could attain the reward of eternal life for himself and for all of his children through his obedience, or through which he could bring death upon himself and his posterity through his disobedience. Upon breaking this covenant, eternal life could only come through the work of Jesus Christ via another covenant, which we're going to see the promise of that covenant today. Rather than it being a covenant of works contingent upon man's obedience, it is a covenant of grace, contingent not upon us at all, but grounded completely in God and His purposes of redemption, grounded in the obedience of Jesus in the place of sinners. Genesis 3, today, one of the most significant chapters in the Bible. Guys, I'm getting a lot of feedback up here. Just sorry for everybody else. It's distracting to me. I don't know if it is to you. So we'll just wait till we can maybe get that corrected. Cool. Great. I'm sort of good to press through for up to a point, but then it's like, well, I think we'll just help everyone by getting. I think this is better. Great. All right. So Genesis three, huge chapter of scripture. Still getting the feedback. It's a fallen world, amen? So here we are. Should I unplug this monitor? I don't know. Does that help? I don't know. Welcome to CBC, everyone. All right, I'm going to keep talking. We're going to go with this. All right. So serious questions. I mean, even as things are falling apart and failing on us this morning, why is the world the way it is? Any thoughtful human being has to answer that question. Why is the world the way that it is? Why are we the way that we are? Why are we, on the one hand, extraordinary creatures, and on the other hand, capable of extraordinary evil? Why is it that this world is both at the same time a wonderful place and a terrible place. Why is it that we bury people that we love? 
Why is it that every human being, not in the same way, but every human being without exception suffers? Why? Why? Why is it that relationships are hard? Why is it that relationships usually don't go well for long? Why is it that all of us are naturally selfish and are inclined toward things that hurt ourselves and hurt other people? Why is it that we are often frustrated in the things that we try to do? Why is it that things so often seem and feel futile and in fact are futile? Well, all of that and more flows out of this chapter. There is more than just that stuff in this chapter, though. As has been alluded to already, there is the promise of redemption and the promise of Christ contained in the chapter that tells us of our fall. Because of Jesus and his obedience and his work to save us, the end will actually be better than the beginning. Adam and Eve were made upright and sinless, but they could sin. We are promised an existence forever upon being resurrected on account of Christ, where we will no longer be able to sin, where evil will no longer exist. And we can't comprehend that, honestly, as fallen human beings. But the end will be better than the beginning. There will come a day when there will not be death anymore. We won't bury people in the ground anymore. We won't say goodbye to people that we love anymore. There will come a day when there won't be pain of a physical nature, or a mental nature, or an emotional nature. There will come a day when there won't be weeping any longer. There will come a day when there will be no more suffering. And we will be in a world of perfect peace and joy with God and with each other forever. And it will never go away. There will be no possibility of it ever getting worse. The script will never flip. It will be peace and joy, and all will be well forever. All of that also flows out of Genesis chapter 3. So one other thing before we get to the text. The promise of our redemption through Christ is not given to us to make our lives better now. We have to understand that. It is not even given so that we will necessarily feel better about the suffering that we experience in this life. It does give us perspective, and it gives us hope that stands, amen. And yet, suffering is real for those who are in Christ. And this life is still hard. As C.S. Lewis wrote in his book entitled A Grief Observed, after the death of his wife, quote, Talk to me about the truth of religion and I'll listen gladly. Talk to me about the duty of religion and I'll listen submissively. But don't come talking to me about the consolations of religion or I shall suspect that you don't understand. No, friends, Christ and the promise of redemption in Him, it stands and functions as a monument, an unshakable monument in this fallen world, testifying to what God has done and will do. This work of Christ and this promise of God through Christ testifies that Jesus came to save sinners. For now, we suffer. And for now, we weep together. And we remind each other, in light of what we're going to consider today, came once to save us, and he's coming back for us. That's what we do. So let's look now to the text. Genesis chapter 3. We're going to read it in its entirety, beginning in verse 1. Listen now as I read. This is the word of God. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me fruit of the tree, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now, lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man, and at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. We thank God for his word in all of its difficulty at points, but also in all of its wonderful promises that it makes to us. I want to consider in the rest of our time this passage under six headings. So I'm going to give six headings or six points for you. If you're trying to just kind of arrange that in your brain or take notes, I'll try to be clear on where we are. Number one, the serpent temptation and the fall into sin. Number one, the serpent temptation and the fall into sin. We're going to look at verses one through seven for a few minutes together. Put your eyes on verse one. You see that there is a new being, a new creature on the scene as of Genesis three and verse one. Now, Genesis 3 provides no explanation as to the origin of this snake, this serpent. But we are on the right track to understand the serpent as an incarnation of Satan. In the book of Revelation, for example, we read words like this about the dragon, the ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan. Or words like this, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver, of the world. The biblical witness is that Satan, whose name means adversary, is an angelic creature who before the creation of the human race rebelled against God. We are not given any more information than that. Satan, though, as he shows up in Scripture, is very subtle. He is crafty. He's even beguiling. He is called the prince of the power of the air, and he is also called the prince of darkness. Yet, he is disguised as an angel of light. He is a liar and the father of lies, and he is a murderer from the beginning, says Jesus. He is the deceiver of the nations, 
and the deceiver of the entire world. Satan is sophisticated. You know, there was, starting in the medieval times, there was often a caricature of the devil, you know, this kind of red figure with horns and a tail and a pitchfork and things like this. And the medieval church did that originally to sort of mock Satan. But I think often in the minds of many people, that is just incredibly detrimental as we try to think about who our enemy is. He is all of these things that we've been considering and more. He is sophisticated, not silly. He speaks with frightening eloquence in the scripture. His appearance is often stunning. He is described as a roaring lion who roams about seeking those that he might devour. And he is the great accuser of the saints. So it is this one who is speaking to Eve in the second half of verse 1 and following. This one. Now just a brief note as you look at the text in front of you in verses 1 to 5, as the serpent speaks, every time he says you, that is a plural you. It's not singular, it's plural. So this combined with the statement, if you look at verse 6, that her husband was with Eve, makes it seem very likely that Adam was present. He was around for this conversation between Eve and the serpent. So what does the serpent say to Eve? Beginning in the second half of verse 1. He calls into question what God had said to Adam and Eve. He says, look at the text. Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Eve's initial response in verses 2 and 3 does include an addition to what God had said about not touching the fruit at all. God had not said that. I think sometimes too big of a deal is made out of that. But it is not insignificant to observe that there has always been a tendency amongst God's people to add things to the commands of God, to make His commands more restrictive than they are, and to pile on top of the clear commands the Lord has given. We have a bad history of doing this. But the serpent goes on by calling into question God's character. He's going to call into question God's posture toward human beings. He's going to call into question God's intentions with and toward human beings. And he's going to call into question God's purposes in everything. See, in verses 4 and 5, the serpent effectively says this, oh, what God said, that's not going to happen. Really, here's what's going on. It's that he knows if you eat of the tree, you'll be like him, and he doesn't want you to be like him. He's only doing this for his own purposes. He's lying to you. And he's holding out on you. There's something that you could have that he won't let you have. On the one hand, it's very interesting that Satan only emphasizes God's prohibition rather than also his goodness and abundant provision. The emphasis of the serpent is on what God prohibits. And he exaggerates it. But then he turns around and denies the legitimacy of God's promise of judgment. He looks at Eve and he says, you won't die. You won't die. You see how subtle he is. In verse 6 we read that Eve sees that the fruit is good for food and it's attractive to the eyes and on account of what the serpent has said, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Remember, as I've already said, that Adam and Eve were made sinless, but they could sin. So this temptation is real. To eat of this tree is to break God's covenant, as we considered last week. Underneath that, it is also an assertion of moral autonomy on account of human beings, right? That human beings are now going to decide for ourselves what is right and wrong rather than deferring to God. That's underneath this. High level, you're breaking God's covenant to eat this, but it is also indicative of the human project 
to decide for ourselves what's good and bad and right and wrong, rather than deferring to God. And that has been the project of fallen man ever since. Eve, in verse 6, eats of the fruit. She then gives some to Adam, and he eats it. Verse 7, and their eyes were opened. They knew that they were naked. Guilt and shame were now theirs. They hadn't known that before. It's hard to imagine an existence, is it not, without guilt and without shame, without fear. Immediately their eyes are opened and they know the good that they've lost and the evil that they've gained. They know that they're naked and so they make loincloths out of fig leaves. They were now ashamed to be naked, Adam and Eve were, even in front of each other. Everything has changed in an instant. Think back to verse 25 of chapter 2. The man and wife were together, they were naked, and they were unashamed. No longer. Let's now move on, friends, to consider verses 8 to 13 under this heading. Number 2, Adam and Eve are found out. Adam and Eve are found out. Verses 8 to 13. In verse 8, as you put your eyes there, we see that Adam and Eve sense the Lord's presence in the garden. And they hide themselves. So notice this. They are now not only ashamed in front of each other, they are now afraid of God. They are now ashamed in front of God. And this is because they're guilty. They know that. They know that they have transgressed God's covenant. In verse 9, the Lord calls out to the man. So he's calling out specifically to Adam. In verse 9 and verse 11, that you, like where are you, who told you, is addressed to Adam. And again, it is because Adam is the one with whom God made a covenant. Eve sinned too. Yet Adam is the one that God made a covenant with. And this is why the rest of the biblical witness makes clear that we fell in Adam. Because Adam is the one who is the representative of all mankind. So when God asks in verse 9, where are you? It's not, of course, that he doesn't know where Adam is. He is drawing Adam out. This is kind of like a parent would do. You know, when a small child in the house is hiding after having done something wrong. And you ask them, you know exactly where they are because you can see half their body sticking out from behind the plant or the chair or whatever it is. But you say, whatever the child's name is, where are you? Trying to draw the child out. That's exactly what the Lord is doing. In verse 10, Adam responds. He says, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Now, don't just blip over that verse. Those are heartbreaking and tragic words. The one who made Adam and Eve and loved them, they're now afraid of him. And we are too, all of us, naturally. This natural, and when I say natural, I mean natural for fallen humans. This natural fear of God, this reality that we carry shame and guilt around before him is why human beings have always sought to deny his existence. And it's why human beings have always sought to use the language of Romans 1 to suppress the truth about him. In our fallen minds and hearts, it is far better that God not exist. Some through history have been honest about that project. Friedrich Nietzsche, for example, would say that God is dead and we have killed him. The blood of God is on our knives. The project of denying the existence of God is born out of our hatred of him. I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid. Verse 11, the Lord then asks Adam, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And again, God knows the answer. He wants the interchange. 
Verse 12, Adam responds. The woman whom you gave me, well, she gave me the fruit and I ate it. So Adam blames Eve and then ultimately blames God. There's, friends, nothing new under the sun in either department. For thousands of years, human beings have been doing this. We blame others and then ultimately we blame God above all. Verse 13, the Lord is going to confront Eve as well for her culpability in this. What is it that you have done, he asks her. And then she as well shifts blame. The serpent, he deceived me and I ate. Heading number three, as we keep making our way through the text. We're going to look at verses 14 and 15, excuse me. Heading number three, a curse on the serpent and the promise of Christ. A curse on the serpent and the promise of Christ. Put your eyes on verse 14. The Lord curses the serpent for his role in all of this. So Satan is cursed here. His humiliation and indignity will last for eternity. Like when we see that whole like crawling around on your belly and eating dust stuff, that is a way of saying that you are humiliated. And remember in all of this, as the Lord curses Satan, that Satan as powerful and sophisticated and frightening as he may be, is still a creature too. He is not God. And ultimately, God does with him as God wills. Put your eyes on verse 15, the first half of it. God declares that there will be enmity between, number one, the woman and the serpent, and secondly, the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. There's going to be enmity between these Individuals in the case of the woman and the serpent, but also their offspring. Now, offspring in this verse must be viewed in spiritual terms in this first part of verse 15. This is obvious in part because Satan does not have physical children. But what is clear from the beginning of verse 15 is that humanity is now divided into two lines. There are those who are, to use the language of Jesus, who are of their father, the devil, John 8, 44, which is clearly meant in spiritual terms. And then there are those who are children of the woman. Consider these words from Revelation 12. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. That's Revelation 12, 17. Two lines of people. Seed of the woman, seed of the serpent. And we can trace these two lines throughout the rest of the biblical account. We'll see that two weeks from today as we look even at Genesis chapter 4. But now put your eyes on the second half of verse 15. Notice there that the reference in the second half of the verse is to a singular male offspring. You can see that. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So the enmity between the serpent and the woman, the serpent and the seed of the woman, reaches a kind of climax now. It's a battle between two individuals, one who is referred to as he and then the serpent. So note the preeminence of this one who is referred to as he in the second half of verse 15. In the first half of verse 15, God speaks to the serpent first. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. But then in the second half of the verse, this he, whoever he is, is preeminent. The serpent will wound his heel, which is not fatal, but he will bruise, will strike the serpent's head, which is fatal. This promise of a redeemer This promise of the snake crusher. There's a children's book that we read in my home called The Biggest Story where Jesus is referred to as the snake crusher throughout the book because of this verse. This promise is the promise of Christ. It is the first promise of the gospel in the scriptures. This verse, Genesis 3.15, and the second half of it in particular, has been called through church history the proto-euangelion, the first message of good news. 
in the immediate aftermath of our fall into ruin and sin, God promises redemption, which should not surprise us at all because that's who he is and that's what he's like. Now, on the significance of Genesis 3.15, in particular that piece about the promise of Christ, the point of everything in the universe from this point forward is this promise. This promise is going to quite literally drive everything moving forward. This is the promise of the covenant of grace. This is the promise of redemption by grace through faith in the Redeemer. And the rest of the Bible, so I mean, you can see this big book. We're right here, and this is what remains. The rest of this book, from Genesis 3.15 to the last verse of Revelation is essentially the unfolding of the accomplishment of this promise. Read your Bible that way. Jesus is preeminent in Scripture. He is preeminent in the plan of redemption. We say it all the time, but this verse and others like it are why we say that the whole Bible is ultimately about Him. This isn't just something cute or catchy to say. As we read the Old Testament on through to the New, we should be reading it with an eye for this promise. This promise of the seed of the woman who would come to crush the head of the serpent. Who is he? When will he come? How will he come? How will he save his people? We're going to read, even in Genesis, as we make our way through this book, we're going to learn of Abraham, that this one is going to be a child of Abraham. He's going to be Abraham's offspring. We're going to learn that he's going to be of the tribe of Judah. So Jacob, who is renamed Israel, has 12 sons. His fourth son is named Judah. And the one who's going to come and save us is of the tribe of Judah. The Lord is going to institute the sacrificial system and the priesthood where He's going to teach His people, He's going to teach us that the Redeemer would come and give His life to atone for sin. That the Redeemer would come and serve as a mediator between God and man. Later on, there's going to be a man named David who's a king over Israel. And we learn then that the Savior, the Redeemer, would be a son of David that he would sit on David's throne and reign in righteousness forever, and he would represent his people. We read in the prophet Isaiah that our Savior would be a suffering servant who would be wounded for our sins and crushed for our iniquities, but by his obedience we would be accounted righteous. The Old Testament ends with anticipation of the great and awesome day of the Lord coming from the pen of the prophet Malachi. And then historically, there's 400 years of silence. And then an angel shows up to a virgin girl, tells her that she's going to conceive of the Holy Spirit and bear a son. She's going to name him Jesus. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. He will be called the son of the Most High and he will reign forever. An angel shows up to Joseph, Mary's husband, and says, don't be afraid to take Mary as your wife, even though she's pregnant. This is of the Holy Spirit. You will name the child Jesus because he came to save his people from their sins. He's here. And when he came, Satan would indeed bruise his heel, most pointedly on the cross. But Jesus would deal Satan a mortal wound by crushing his head. Satan's final defeat would come at the hands of Jesus of Nazareth, the incarnate Son of God, the one who is promised here in Genesis 3.15. Fourth heading. Heading number four. Point number four. Judgment on Eve and Adam and a curse on the creation because of Adam. Judgment on Eve and Adam and a curse on the creation because of Adam. We're going to look at verses 16 to 19. Do notice as you read verses 14 to 19, the only curses that are pronounced are on the serpent and on the earth because of Adam. Adam and Eve are not said to be cursed. 
Though, of course, they are judged, and they fall into ruin and plunge all of us into ruin along with them. Put your eyes on verse 16. The Lord is going to speak to Eve. He promises her, as a result of sin, that she would have pain in childbearing. Now, not just, again, this is not unique to me. This is the understanding of Christians for 2,000 years. Not just pain in childbearing, but also pain and difficulty and strife in raising children. There also, we see, is going to be strife and enmity within marriage. The verse says in the second half of it that your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Now that word rendered desire indicates a conflict of control. Put your eyes on Genesis 4 and verse 7. Just one chapter over. The exact same construction exists here where God is speaking to Cain. If you do well, you will, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you. The woman would desire to do with her husband what she wants to do, to rule over him, but God says your husband will dominate you. He will rule over you. This strife in marriage is real. We thought about this even a few weeks ago from the book of Ephesians, but this strife in marriage, which is the most fundamental and primary human relationship in the world, if there's strife there, it certainly indicates that there's going to be strife in every other relationship that we have. From the greater to the lesser, right? In verses 17 and 19, God speaks to Adam. And he says first that the earth, the ground, is cursed because of you. The creation, Adam, is cursed because of your sin. And again, remember, Adam is the one with whom God had made a covenant. And so through Adam comes the ruin. Creation is subjected to futility because of what Adam did, and creation still groans because of it. Adam, the Lord says, will toil in his labor, and he will do so until he's put back into the ground. What harrowing words are these where the Lord says, you will toil till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. And so it is. I don't know if you've thought about it this way, but if we ever question how big of a deal sin is, we are put back into the earth that we were made to rule over, and it consumes our bodies. That's the significance of sin. A summary of the Lord's words to Adam in verses 17 to 19 would be this. The earth is cursed because of you. You will toil and you will die. Such is the existence of fallen man. The scope of the fall cannot be overstated. Sin has affected every aspect of our personhood. It's affected our bodies. They break down, they give out, and they die. It's affected our minds. We don't think as we should. It's affected our hearts. It's affected our emotions. We don't feel the things that we should. It's affected our wills. When Adam and Eve were created, they were free. Ever since the fall, man is not free. We are in bondage to this sin and corruption. The fall has affected our desires. Every person in this room wants things that are evil. Sin has also had holistic fallout in all of the creation. There is quite literally cosmic brokenness, and it is everywhere we look. It's ubiquitous. The creation needs a redeemer, and so do we. One who would come to reverse the effects of the curse and make all things new. In Romans chapter 8, Paul writes these words. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Jesus came the first time to accomplish salvation, and he will come again to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Heading number five, a ray of hope. Number five, a ray of hope. Let's look at verses 20 and 21. So again, in the immediate aftermath of the fall and of curses being pronounced and of judgment falling, there is hope. There is light in the midst of darkness and there is hope in the midst of ruin, not because of us, but because of God, because he is merciful and because he is gracious. God would have been completely just in damning Adam and Eve eternally. But he doesn't do that. On that note, he would be completely just in damning every one of us eternally. But praise be to his name, he hasn't done that. In verse 20, Adam names his wife Eve. You see that. Because she was the mother of all living. Eve is a form of the Hebrew word for life. So even here, in the midst of sin and curses, God's mercy shines through. There will be life. There will be offspring. That's mercy. There will be one offspring in particular who will save Adam and Eve and many of their sons and daughters. That is scandalous mercy. And then in verse 21, God makes garments of skins for Adam and Eve. They had sewn loincloths of fig leaves he makes them better garments of skins to wear. Of skins implies that God took life from a creature in order to make these garments. And he clothes Adam and Eve with them. He literally covers their shame and covers their guilt. And so he would do for all of his people from all time. He's done that for you. He has covered your shame and he's covered your guilt. In verse 21, we see God's mercy in the midst of human sin. and We see a pointer to how it will happen. That is the mercy of God to save sinners. Sacrifice and substitution will be a part of God's plan to deal with our sin. Heading number six, the last one. In verses 22 to 24, we're going to consider that Adam is driven from the garden and from the tree of life. Number six. Adam is driven from the garden and from the tree of life. So again, in these verses, the language is about Adam. It's not that Eve is not involved. It's not that Eve is not complicit. But Adam is the one with whom God had made a covenant. He is the representative. And so the words of being driven from the garden and particularly from the tree of life are spoken to him. Remember, that the pledge of eternal life and blessedness had stood before Adam in the garden, represented by the tree of life. Adam had one opportunity to have access to this tree on his own. And he had messed that up. He had fallen into sin. Access to eternal life and blessedness would not come through Adam's working anymore. It would not come through Adam's obedience anymore. It could not. In driving Adam from the garden and also from the tree of life, God is also establishing separation between himself and fallen man. That language of he drove out the man in verse 24 is very strong. It's like he threw him out. God is creating separation between His holiness and our sin, between His benevolent presence and covenant breakers. And these themes also run throughout the Scripture. So to conclude our time today, let's just reflect for a moment on these three verses, verses 22 to 24. In them, again very plainly, we see that Adam and Eve are kept from the tree of life. They will no longer have access to it. God sees to that. He puts an angel to guard the way into the garden and a flaming sword that turns every direction. Should Adam have obeyed originally 
eternal life and blessedness would have been his. It would have been ours too as his children. But Adam broke the covenant. And so now eternal life and blessedness would have to come to Adam and all of us in a different way. These verses, in other words, friends, are a pointer to the way of salvation. They teach us not by works, but by faith. Not by merit, but by grace. Would we have to be saved now? We cannot get to eternal life on our own. God will not allow it. The rest of the Bible bears this out. Just as the apostles teach, by faith, by grace, through Christ alone, not on account of works, not on account of merit, not by the law. But how exactly is eternal life given to us? How is it made ours? Answer is through the obedience of Christ. It is earned for us. And then we receive that by faith. Jesus earns eternal life for us. And we receive it by faith. He earned it for us in his perfect life. This passage, combined with like Romans 5 that was read earlier in this service, and others, is why we say that Jesus is the new and better Adam. He is the second Adam that came to do what Adam could not do. Adam failed to fulfill the covenant of works that God made with him. Jesus would come to fulfill everything that Adam failed to fulfill. This is made crystal clear, friends, in the events that kick off the earthly ministry of Christ. So when you think about the gospel accounts, particularly of Matthew and Luke, and how Jesus' earthly ministry begins, Christ is baptized, not for his own sake, but to fulfill all righteousness. Then he is, what, tempted. By whom? Satan. Just like Adam. It's like screaming. Another Adam is here. The first Adam is tempted in a garden paradise, in a world that isn't fallen, and he failed. The second Adam is tempted in a wilderness, not having eaten for 40 days, and he succeeds. The point of Matthew 4 and Luke 4 and the temptation of Christ is not that we can defeat Satan with the word of God. It's that Jesus came to save us and do what Adam couldn't do. Your Savior is here. By secondary implication, yes, we fight against the enemy with the word of God amongst the other things that the Lord gives us. Jesus also earned eternal life for us through his obedience in his suffering. Verse 24 describes for us an angel and a flaming sword and all these things that are put there to guard the way to the tree of life. When the tabernacle is made later on in Israel's history, God tells Moses this, and you shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim skillfully worked into it. And you shall hang it on four pillars of acacia overlaid with gold, with hooks of gold on four bases of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps and bring the ark of the testimony in there within the veil. And the veil shall separate for you the holy place from the most holy. You shall put the mercy seat on the ark of the testimony in the most holy place. There would be a curtain that would separate the most holy place where God's presence was, where the Ark of the Covenant was, where the mercy seat, where atonement was made, where that was, it was separated from God's people by a curtain that had a cherubim on it. And it is no coincidence that immediately upon the death of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, a bunch of things happen, but one of the things that happens is that that curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. That curtain torn in two from top to bottom means that this is not from earth, it's from heaven. This is not from man, it's from God. Beginning from Genesis 3, 24, friends, we are separated from God because of our sin. The scriptures teach this over and over and over again. In the tabernacle, like I just described, but for crying out loud, the entire camp of Israel is like concentric circles of holiness with God in the center. And nothing that's unclean can come near Him. Because of our sin, we cannot dwell in the benevolent, wonderful, life-giving presence of God. 
God is teaching his people that to be with him is the greatest thing in the world, but because of our sin, we can't be with him. And then Jesus shows up, and immediately upon his death, alienation is no more. Man now has access to the benevolent presence of God, and access to eternal life, and access to mercy, and access to grace because of what Christ has done. Jesus is the end of our alienation. In Adam we died. In Christ we're made alive. In Adam we fell. In Christ we're redeemed. The Bible is a story of two Adams. Very simply. We will, on the basis of Scripture, not know eternal life and blessedness in the presence of God through our work because our obedience will not do it. But the obedience of Christ that will do. What must you do as a fallen sinner to be saved? What must you do? Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. That message is shockingly offensive to people. You're telling me that's all I need to do is trust Christ. Yes. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. We are saved, friends, by faith alone, not because salvation is cheap. We are saved by faith alone because Christ is such a sufficient Savior. And because his obedience is enough to save sinners. Understand this. That, what I just said, we are saved by faith alone in Christ alone because His obedience is sufficient to save? That has always been crystal clear in the mind and plan of God. He's not confused. We are the ones who get it twisted. We were lost by works or a lack of works. That's true. And we are brought back to God through works. But hear this. It's because Jesus carries us the whole way that we're saved. We will be brought back to God by works. And Christ will carry you and will carry me the entire way. Beloved, trust Christ. Take away from Genesis 3, the greatest one. Trust in Him. Trust the Redeemer who came. Because there is salvation in no one else. For there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Let's pray. Father, we acknowledge again our weakness and our need, our distractedness, our doubts, our wrestlings, our fears, our sin. Give us mercy and give us faith. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.